So Romans chapter 6, let us read the Word of God, and then we'll pray and, and uh, consider what the Lord has for us. Romans 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And the reading there at verse 6. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Gracious God, we gather this evening and we remember the words that we have recorded both in Old Testament and in you, that thy house shall be called a house of prayer. And gracious God, we ask that that may be the case tonight. We need to pray that thy kingdom, in, in mysterious ways perhaps, hinges upon praying people. And yet it is a mark of everyone born of the Spirit that they call upon the name of the Lord. It is how we begin our journey, when we call unto Thee, and You hear us and You save our precious souls. And gracious God, we're thankful for the Spirit that is in our hearts, that moves us to cry, Abba, Father, to keep on in a course of prayer and depending upon the living God and calling upon Thee in and through the merit of Christ. Oh God, we pray that Thou wilt help us tonight. We need help in the place of prayer. We have brothers and sisters that need us to pray for them. We need help. They need help. And oh Lord, we ask that Thou wilt come and give comfort to those that sorrow, those that mourn. Oh God, we pray that Thou wilt enable them to be aware that underneath and round about them are Thine everlasting arms. This is true. It's always true of Thy people, but we pray for that felt knowledge and experience of it. And especially we pray that thou remember those who mourn in recent days and give much grace to Carolyn. She's so alone. We pray, O oh God, that you'll comfort and be with her and give all the counsel and guidance that she needs. And Lord, even to others as well that are on her hearts. So help us. So thankful, Lord, for your goodness. And we rejoice in what thou art doing. We thank thee even for the Lord's Day and the services in Orlando, as well as, as well as there in Maine. We thank Thee for 19 souls gathered in to that library, and we pray that many more will gather in to hear the Word of God. We praise Thee for hearing our prayers. So continue, Lord, and be with us tonight, and give us a spirit of prayer. Awaken all Thy people, and cause us, Lord, to lay hold on Thee this night. It's an urgent season. We need Thy help. Hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a great weakness in humanity for that which is novel. You'll know it to be the case because marketers are very aware of that. They, they like to sell something as new. This is the new diet that's going to change your life. Or sometimes all they do is take something old and they rename it or repackage it and, and then throw it out to you and you, you're sucked in by this, oh, it's new, but really it's, it's not new. Even many of the heresies of the church, when they arise and we take a closer look at them and say, here's a new view or a new idea, often we find when we scrape away 
the new lingo that really it's just an old heresy repackaged. So it is time and time again. Really, there's nothing new under the sun, and yet we are, we are drawn to the novel, drawn to the new by our very fallen frame. And it's not isolated, as I say, to commercial endeavors. It makes its way into everything, including religious life. And there's always a, a new Babylon that arises opposing Zion and all for which she stands. But here in our portion, Romans chapter 6, verse 4 specifically, the apostle speaks of believers walking in newness of life. Newness of life. And he desires that Christians would experience this. In fact, as he teaches in the surrounding portion, he's really saying that there is no alternative. That if you've experienced the justifying grace of God in your life, you will walk in newness of life. It's impossible that you would not. Such is our standing in Christ. Those of us who believe in Him, joined to Jesus Christ, not only are we dead, but we are buried with Christ and possess the likeness of His resurrection, it says in verse 5. We're also, in other passages, you can think of how this union relates to us. In Christ we are crucified, Galatians 2.20. We are dead, 2 Timothy 2.11. Buried, Colossians 2.12. Made alive, Ephesians 2.5. Sit in the heavenlies, Ephesians 2.6. Co-heirs and share in His glory, Romans 8.17. And we will reign with Him, 2 Timothy 2.12. All of this is true of us. And flowing out of this union is a reality. We ought to and we shall walk in newness of life. So let me ask you, at the start of this year, are you walking in newness of life? Is there, is there a sense of walking with God and enjoying the benefits for which Christ shed His blood? Or are you kind of meandering aimlessly and hopelessly ignoring these benefits and blessings? Because Paul wants you to enjoy what Christ has purchased for you. He wants you to embrace it, and He wants you to understand what you have in Him so that your life can be described as this. Here I am walking in newness of life. This is something novel, something new, that never grows old, doesn't fade away, and its attractiveness doesn't dim. It's not like all the other stuff that's pitched to you. So let's think of this, this newness of life as the Lord helps us. And there are just three words I want to anchor our thoughts around. And that is the words know, reckon, and yield. Know, reckon, and yield. First, what or we must know our new life. We are to know it, that is be aware of it. The apostle in Romans chapter 6 uses the word know repeatedly. And we have it in our authorized translation. You will see it. You scan your eye down through the passage. Verse 3, know ye not. Verse 6, knowing this. And on and it goes. Verse 9, knowing that. And there are others that you will find there. But the Greek behind these words is not all the same. In verse 6, it's gnosko, which is to know something by experience. In verses 9 and 16, it is ido, which is a knowledge which is seeing or perceiving something. But in verse 3, the word translated know has the idea of being ignorant of something through lack of information or sometimes intelligence. Know ye not, it's put in the negative. 
Are you ignorant of this fact? Are you not aware of this truth that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? In other words, are you ignorant of the fact that everyone that is in Christ was baptized into Christ and baptized into his death? It's not some select number of Christians. All Christians have experienced this. So we don't get to sit aside and say, well, I have to experience that first before I walk in newness of life. No, if you're a Christian, verse 3 is reality to you. And subsequently then, newness of life ought to be reality to you. What is it that Paul is so concerned that they are ignorant of? Like I say, it's what they have in Christ, what has happened to them because of the work of Christ. And so, there are a number of truths that you find in the surrounding passage we might say are important for us to be aware of. In fact, if you go to the previous chapter, you'll find a number of contrasts and comparisons that are used. I'm not going to look at them all with you, but we'll look at a number of them. First, we might say man is physically identified with Adam or Christ. Romans 5, you look at verses 12, 14, 18, 19, it all shows that we are connected to Adam. I'll just read verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, it's obviously Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. There is this union that we have with Adam. There are other passages, verses that show us really that we are so tied into Adam. There's no avoiding this sense of him representing us and our identification in him. We partake of his humanity, don't we? We can't get away from that. Adam, we're told in Genesis 5 verse 1, was made in the likeness of God. Seth, his son, we're told in verse 3 of that passage, was made in the likeness of Adam. And so it has been for all the posterity since then. It's not that we no longer have the image of God. We're aware of that. We know passages of Scripture that underline that even in our fallen state, we still possess the image of God, but it is in a marred form. And so in one sense, I think we're meant to see that, that we are more like Seth, that we are after his likeness. There's this marred experience. But in order to save us, Jesus Christ takes the same nature. We've seen this in Hebrews, haven't we? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that he also likewise took part of the same, took the same nature. And by Christ's obedience and sacrifice, he purchases for us, listen, a new humanity. He takes on the work in order to give to you a new humanity. So you walk in newness of life and the experience of a new humanity. The early, as a lot of this is a kind of an already not yet thing, we are experiencing it now, but there's a fuller experience to come. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it speaks of him being the firstborn among many brethren. He is the firstborn among many brethren, the first to, to be raised and to bring humanity into the presence of God in a glorified condition. And he does that, and we are in his train. We're all going to experience this glorified humanity when he will change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, Philippians 3.21. So we are, as I say, physically identified with Adam or Christ. Now, if we're still identified with Adam, then this physical frame of yours does not possess or enjoy or have the promise of the new humanity. And so you can't walk in newness of life, nor will you be glorified after this scene of time. You will perish. The humanity that you have will be in some way prepared by God so it will endure 
his wrath for all eternity, but it will not be glorified and made like unto Christ's. Only saving faith can do that. Also, man is federally identified with Adam or Christ. Our larger catechism asks this question. Did all mankind fall in that first transgression? And answers this. The covenant being made with Adam as a public person, not for himself only, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. And the reason I read the larger catechism there, because it's very similar to the shorter, but the larger includes the fact that Adam was a public person. That's important language. Because identifying him as a federal representative, he is representing people. And he's representing all those who, as, I, as it says, all his posterity descending from him by ordinary generations. So only Christ is accepted here. And so we're either identified with Adam or Christ. Now, Adam is a public person, without getting into the nuances of the theology. Romans 5 again contrasts Adam with Christ. You see it in the verse that we read, Romans 5, 12. One man, by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Okay, so here's that experience. And you go, let's go down to oh, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's dis- disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, many be made righteous. So Adam is this public person. He is a federal representative. And you are either represented by him, and you are by nature, or by saving faith. This is an amazing thing. That's how Romans 5 begins, in being justified by faith. We have peace with God. It is by faith, faith in Christ, that we then have him as our representative, as the one standing on our behalf. And so through him, everything changes. We identify with him. And there's all sorts of other things we consider there. But even how we began, those, those experiences of being in the heavenlies and being glorified and reigning with Him is all because Christ represents us. Also, man is judicially identified with Adam or Christ. And again, you see this in Romans 5 where Paul is arguing this whole aspect of the experience of death. Repeatedly, he says, like, death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Verse 12 Death reigned from Adam to Moses, verse 14. If by one man's offense, death reigned by one, verse 17. Sin hath reigned unto death, verse 21. And yet by faith alone, in Christ alone, we are brought to experience eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 21 of the same chapter. So, what is the character of those that have this eternal life by grace alone? We are judiciously we are ju- judicially represented either in Adam, which means death, or in Christ, which means life. And that life, that life, beloved, as it ends chapter 5, how it ends is it leads to this everlasting, eternal life. But it is to be seen in your experience now. This is the point. He's building the argument. So that you, because positionally you are in Christ, you therefore walk in newness of life. In other words, let me just make this point before I go further. If there isn't evidence of a new life, of walking in newness of life, then there's all the evidence you could ask for that there's never been this positional change. You've never moved from being under Adam to be under Christ. 
you're still represented by the old father, the old representative, the one who leads to death. But if you have life, if you have life, there must be a change. Now, here's the point. These are things you must know. Right? There's, there's nothing here that's variable. It's not like this could be true of someone and not of another. Not unless you're, you're not saved. If you're saved, everything we have said is true of you. And Paul's saying you have to know this. You have to know this. There are things we have to know. I guess it gets to the old point, really, doesn't it, about people saying theology is boring or looking at theology is, is, is pro- doesn't profit me or I just want some devotional thought. I, I'm, I'm not against. Some are against devotions and devotional ideas and thought. I'm not. I'm not. In fact, largely on Wednesday nights, that's what I endeavor to do, is really to just bring some light devotional thought. Tonight's a little different. It's maybe a little more heavy than usual. But the devotional thought helps us in a moment. Understanding theology changes your life. It's far more long-lasting. When you get a grip of certain things, and I get it, we're not always in the right frame, we're not always ready to digest a heavy meal or whatever. I get it, and there, there's a place for that. I think, I think we have to recognize that. And I think those churches that always lay heavy on doctrine, doctrine, on this heavy way, and there's nothing devotional about it or no, nothing kind of helping it to embed in a light way, it tends to either stifle growth because it's just dead, and it's filling the head, um, or, or it creates a, a, a certain type of people that, that have no heart. There, there has to be a raising of the affections. But let me say this. The truth, the truth is crucial to do this. Paul's laying the foundation so that he can make the application. He has a lot, a lot more time. So he's laying this foundation. When he gets to chapter 12, he's going to like, then, well, well, what do you do then because of all of this? And he drives home the point in this very practical way. So these are things you have to know. Then there are things you must reckon. We must reckon in our new life. The newness of life spoken of in Romans 6 verse 4 flows out of the fact that Christ was raised up from the dead, isn't it? It's the fact that Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we, should also, we also should walk in newness of life. So Christ's, let's put it this way, his post-resurrection life signifies to every Christian something about the Spirit's work of regeneration in them. So we are to see that as that same power that raised up Christ from the dead is doing something in us. And so, again, there are things we are to know, and then because these things are, are true, then we are to believe them and seize on to them. And so you come to verse 11, Romans six eleven. He uses this word, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. What's the point of that? Well, it's tied into what he said in verse 4. Christ has died and he's raised up from the dead. It repeats that again in verses 9 and 10. The fact that he died, but he lives unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if I can pull this all together, let me say it this way. 
what he says in Romans 6, 4 about Christ dying and, and rising is tied into your understanding of how to walk in newness of life. And he's building on the argument. He's saying you're to not only know this, but really believe it, seize upon it. The word reckon in the Greek means to consider to be true. You're to consider to be true that you're dead unto sin and alive unto God. (laughs) Now ask yourself, do you feel like you're dead unto sin? Maybe not. Maybe you've lost the battle today and you don't feel very dead to sin because if I was dead to sin, then I wouldn't be succumbing to it. It wouldn't have an appeal to me. It wouldn't seem to hold sway over me. But you come here and you know it does. And that's why Paul has to use language like this because your experience, your experience counters the reality theological reality. And you feel a conflict. You feel that conflict. That's why he's going into such kind of repetitive and building arguments over the same truth. And while he needs to get into believers at Rome, just as it's the same for you today and for me, you have to reckon, you have to consider to be true that you're dead unto sin. Now, the evidence of that deadness varies at various times in our lives. But largely speaking, it can be seen in this. When asked, do you want to give yourself to a life of sin? Your answer is a resounding, no! No! And as you grow in grace, young people maybe aren't fully aware of this yet, but as you grow, you will become more aware of it. The longing of your soul will become more and more Oh, for glory! McShane put it perfectly, didn't he? When he wrote in his poem, Not till then, how much I owe. He talks about, Love thee with unsinning heart. There's a time in a Christian life, especially early on, we don't really grasp how much we want that day to dawn. And then as we walk and we fight and we wrestle and we sometimes feel that we are losing more than we are winning, we begin to crave more and more. Crave more and more the day that my love for Christ will not be tarnished by a sinning heart. Nevertheless, you are to reckon, you are to consider to be true, you are to get a hold of this. And if you don't, you're not going to walk in newness of life. You're not. You're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to know any victory at all. So this, this newness, how are we to, to really believe this? How are we to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed? How are we to die to sin so that we might walk in newness of life? How is this? My time is almost gone, but let me very quickly show a couple of things here. First, the genesis of this new life is grace. The genesis of this new life is grace. I'll just give a quote here from Spurgeon. He said, Remember, with regard to God, that His grace to man was utterly unsought. He does give grace to those who seek it, but none would ever seek that grace unless unsought grace had first been bestowed. 
Sovereign grace waiteth not for man, neither tarrieth for the sons of men. The love of God goes forth to men when they have no thought after him. End quote. And it always amazes me how anyone can fight with that. I'm like, are you serious? Are you telling me your experience contradicts that? So Paul speaks lots about grace. I just encourage you to go back and read Romans 5. Mark grace. talks about, verse 15, the grace of God and the gift by grace. Verse 17, they which receive abundance of grace. Verse 21, even so might grace reign. So how does a holy God mediate grace to undeserving sinners? Well, that brings us to another thought. Not only the genesis of this new life is grace, but the governor of this new life is Christ. Christ is the mediator of the covenant of grace. By Him, He mediates this. This is how this amazing experience comes to pass. So Paul speaks of grace. When he does so, it is governed by the person and work of Christ. So look again at those verses, Romans 5.15. The grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by, notice the preposition, by one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 21. Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, it doesn't happen. He governs. He supplies grace. Flows out of Him what He has done. And what is the goal of this new life? The goal is eternal life. That's how it speaks to us in verse 21. And even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. So again, eternal life, how do we understand it? Well, it hasn't already, not yet, reality, doesn't it? There's a sense in which you already have it. If you're a Christian, you have eternal life. You know this. There are many verses, but 1 John 5.13 These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Other verses in John's Gospel say the same. But it's also future. Jesus speaks of what we have now and what we have in the future and speaks in Mark 10.30 in the world to come eternal life. So this is what it's going to. And I think then you read Romans 5.21 As sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And then you go to chapter 6. Verse 22, being now made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. So, this is true, future. And since it's true, future, it must be seen present. Walk in newness of life, Christian. Newness of life is for you. So, we have what we know, what we must reckon, then we must yield in our new life. And this is where we close. We must yield in our new life. As not, it's crucial that we understand what is true, what we know, and then we reckon. We say, this is true. I grab, grapple with it, and it's true no matter what my experience tells me may be otherwise. And so it's a reality for us. The resurrection of Christ gives life to all who believe. And so, again, let's look at verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, so that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Let me put it this way. The resurrection of Christ does not, you're not to be merely a spectator of the resurrection of Christ, but you are a participator in 
the resurrection of Christ. It's not just something you look back on and say it happened, but it is something that is very real in your experience. Christ's resurrection. The power of that resurrection is in you. I mean, that, that is how I understand the language when it says that he was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. It's saying that he's raised up by the glory, by the power, by the power of the Father. By omnipotence, he was raised from the dead. Then it is seeing that power that raised the Son of God from the dead that we are encouraged. By what power then do I walk in newness of life? Same power. It's the same power. Don't just spectate and say, there the Son of God died. But you participate and you say, that, that event, the power in that event is, is, is in me. It's for me. Every day is for me. Not, not just at Easter. <laughs> but every day, oh Christian, get up and say, I'm going to walk in newness of life. And then you say, how am I going to do this? Lord! Only by the power that you exhibited when your son was raised from the dead. Only by that power can I walk in the newness of life. And it was right there for you to take every morning by faith. Just like you took Christ for salvation and eternal life. So you take the power. You take it by faith. You say that power is there for me to take. Christian, take it. This congregation this year actually seizes upon it and says... Yes, newness of life. That's mine. And we are going to, I am going to enjoy the Lord, not by my own effort, not by my own strength, but by resting in, seizing upon, beseeching God for that power he displayed when he raised the Son from the dead. Now you know how weak you are, so any less power will not do You will fail, as will I. But it's there. And so tonight, let us pray. Let us pray for it. Oh, some dear loved ones have now gone, haven't they? Such has been the last few weeks. We have known a number that have passed. And so they are now, they are now in that end everlasting life. They have their fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. They have lived devoted lives to Christ and the end is everlasting life where there's no more sin, no more battle. But you're here. And that day will come for you soon enough as it will for me. Let us, oh, let me call you Christian. Hear it as a call, a call of your Savior. He so wants you to walk in newness of life. God has provided the power to do so. Take it by faith. He is able. May the Lord help us by His grace. We're going to sing before we pray.